Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at People kind of sitting on their couches, eating potato chips and pajamas all day, just not going to work because it doesn't matter anymore. Like, it's just meaningless. It's pointless. Why are we actually doing that? Um, but what we're hoping for in this series is as we kind of look at this experiment that Solomon is setting his heart out to understand and seek and experience, um, and even him coming to the conclusion that it's all mean, meaningless, it's all vanity, it's all striving after the wind, it's pointless, what we're actually seeking to understand is similar to what we found in that third song, is how is it well with our souls as we strive through life, as we figure out life, as we walk through life, to actually find in and of itself everything to be meaningless when it's apart from a relationship with Christ. How it's meaningless if we're not understanding the design in which God gave us arts and sciences and relationships and work and toil and pleasure and enjoyment and all those good things. And so this experiment that we're walking through with Solomon is allowing him to kind of guide us and teach us and shape us to understand that if we seek out all the things that God provides for us, but if we seek those things ultimately to find satisfaction in those things alone, then it's going to crumble. It's going to not um, hold up to the weight of our worship of those things for our own satisfaction. And so that's why Solomon, as he is seeking it out, just finds it all to be pointless and meaningless if he's trying to be satisfied in and of those things by themselves. And so that's why, again, it's, it's good for us to see and just to provide for you the punchline that um, all of these things minus Jesus is worthless. Don't even try it. But through Christ, as we steward all of these good gifts that he's provided for us, we're able to then stand or sit or sleep or work or toil or enjoy all of those things and be able to say, it's well with my soul because of Christ who is in me. And as we kind of looked at over this last week, um, just this idea that when, when Solomon is seeking out understanding all things, uh, really the kind of area that it hinged on was verse 15 in chapter 1 when he says, what's crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. What he's essentially saying there is our, push, our pursuit to try to perfect life cannot be done in our own strength, cannot be done in our own ability, cannot be done in our own intellect, cannot be done in any of our skills or trades or whatever it looks like. And I can prove that literally, but if you just took out a piece of paper right now and just try to draw a straight line, you can't do it. And by the off chance you actually do it, do it again. You're not going to do it. Like we cannot make straight crooked paths. We cannot perfect life in and of ourselves because we are not perfect. And we never will be apart from Christ. So today we're going to look at how, uh, how Solomon, after coming to that conclusion of just knowledge and understanding and finding it to be vanity or meaningless, he then seeks to apply his heart to not just the knowledge, but to experience it. So now he kind of moves into the experiment level of, okay, I've, I've looked at everything, I've studied everything, I've seen everything, but now I'm actually going to apply my life to everything and experience it. I'm actually going to do it. And in doing it, 
see ultimately what he comes to a conclusion of. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. And I'm going to look at the first three verses and, and kind of unpack that a little bit. Verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, also, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon's not necessarily something like you just want to hang out with, right? I mean, he's the Debbie Downer. Like, he is the guy who's like, I mean, even down to the point of uh, just to see what's good for the children the few days of their life. Like, he's just saying to you, like, it, it doesn't matter um, whether it's 90 years or nine years. It's just a few days. We'll just see what happens here. And for him, it's like I, I've set my heart to test pleasure and it's vanity. And so we're actually going to look into three areas that he actually sets his heart to to test out to see kind of whether or not he finds any pleasure in these things. And so this experiment is literally just kind of launching out. Um, And what we see here in him seeking out pleasure, what we know historically, not just only from this book, but also from the historical accounts of Solomon in his life that we see in 1 Kings, I mean, he set out to enjoy and to seek pleasure in everything. And the first place that he really seeks out to, set, to enjoy and, and to seek out pleasure is just partying. I mean, he threw parties um, like we have not seen. I mean, if you've ever read the book Great Gatsby or seen the movie Great Gatsby, I'm a movie guy before a book guy. Like, why, why waste a good book but when you can just watch the movie? Like, that's kind of my posture. And some of you are like, that just... You now hate me, but uh, Great Gatsby looks like a rookie compared to the types of parties that Solomon is throwing here. I mean, when we're talking about he's seeking out laughter, he's seeking out wine, he's seeking out um, food and the pleasure of these things. I mean, he's inviting over to his house, I mean, the best comedians that are out there. I mean, he's inviting in Dane Cook. Um, and if you don't know Dane Cook because you're Christian, that's okay. Um, and if that's too raunchy, like if you're on the Christian side, he's inviting in Tim Hawkins, if you know who he is. All right, and that kind of holy laughter there. Um, but he's inviting in the best of the best into these parties and, and, and is just enjoying himself throughout this process. Now, there's something we got to be careful of here when we think about this series is it's really easy for us to kind of compare ourselves to Solomon and, and, and especially when it comes down to what he did because it's easy for us to say, well, we're in modern society now. Like our advances of technology and what we can enjoy far supersede anything that he enjoyed. Like he partied, but did he partay? Like did he actually like really enjoy himself? And at the end of the day, like the types of parties he's throwing make your little bring your own meat to your house like Saturday get together look like preschool compared to what he did. Or like if you're thinking back, I know some of like we're a young crowd, so like you just graduated college, you're thinking to your kind of partying scene in college or however you enjoyed it, you're thinking, man, I was able to party versus Solomon. Well, we just let's just look at 1 Kings chapter 4, 
verse 22 on kind of their recollection of how he partied. Solomon's provision for one day, one party was 30 cores of fine flour. That's 220 liters um, for those who like the metric system. 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, or chickens, kind of little yard birds. So you've got Solomon here throwing a feast that can feed. And every commentary that I've read, every commentary that I've studied on this, all agree that one party he's throwing is feeding fifteen to 20,000 people. Fifteen to 20,000 people. And he did this daily. Like he was throwing this on Monday. And then like, again, having all the comedians over, having all the, the, the meal there, having all the entertainment, the laughter... And then saying, let's do it again on Tuesday. And then let's do it again on Wednesday. I mean, he set himself out to seek out all the pleasure he could possibly get when it comes to this idea of, I want to enjoy life to the fullest. And this is what he was doing. Look at verse 4. This is him now experiencing the party scene. And once he experienced the party scene and took it to the fullest, he is then now moving in and saying, man, I've got to do something different. And and what we're actually starting to see here is he's actually kind of fulfilling the life stages that we walk into, right? Like for a lot of us, we we kind of view back high school and college as like, man, that that was when I enjoyed myself. And then I kind of needed to grow up. I needed to mature a little bit. I needed to make something of myself. I needed to be productive with my time. I needed to move into a stage of life where I'm actually contributing to society rather than just taking from it and enjoying from it. So we see here, verse 4, this kind of next phase that he moves into. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So as he's leaving this scene and as he's moving into, I need to make something of myself, Solomon seeks out to build. And when he goes to build, he's not just building like shacks. He's not just building like small developments. I mean, we, we know from just his history, Solomon's temple that was built took seven years to build. Solomon's temple, seven years built. One of the ancient wonders of the world. I mean, built ornately. I mean, it was beautiful. Laced with gold all the way around it. A gorgeous temple. Solomon's house, in comparison, took 14 years to build and construct. So, I mean, as he's seeking out to say, I built houses, he's not saying, like, I just kind of wanted to you know, I've got a couple of kids. I need four bedroom, two bath. He's like walking into, I'm going to build the largest house that has ever existed. The temple is going to look like a shack compared to what I'm going to build for myself. Not only that, but he built houses for his wives. We're going to get into that here in a moment. He had 700 wives and he's building houses for them as well. Not only is he building houses, but he's getting into gardening. Like there's how many of you like enjoy kind of the green thumb going out and looking at your front yard after you've landscaped it and put mulch down and planted bushes and flowers and cut the grass, got rid of the weeds. Like you're able to kind of sit back and look at that and say, man, that that looks good. 
like Solomon is looking at your little gardening and saying, man, you built, like you did a little thing over here. Like I planted forests. Forests. I mean, what else is there to do after that? Nothing. It's forest. You can't plant anything bigger than that. And Solomon is saying, I literally set myself out to do this and to accomplish this. You can actually still today, this idea of the pools that he built to water these gardens and parks and forests that he built in southwest Jerusalem. Today, you can actually go out and they have these huge craters that are out there that are called the Pools of Solomon that were these just hand-dug huge lakes in order for him just to have some type of system to water all of the things that he planted. It makes our little buckets, again, look like preschool. Then he moves on from there. This, this scene of needing to build and be productive and work he then moves on to this scene of being able to enjoy it. Look at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." So he left the party scene, he's now leaving the building scene, and he's literally just moving into a life of wealth and ease. I mean, think about this, in our stages of life, he's now, I've spent years literally working and building and contributing to society, and now I'm going to just sit back and enjoy. I'm going to sit back with a life of wealth and ease. I mean, literally, I've got slaves upon slaves. I've got servants of slaves and the servants of those slaves, slaves. I mean, he's literally saying, like, I'm not doing anything anymore. I wake up at 11 o'clock now. I've got people cooking breakfast for me, chewing it up for me and feeding it to me. Like, I've, I literally am not doing anything. I'm going to then move on from there to getting my massage at 1 o'clock. I not only have that, but I'm a, I've got a horse ranch. I've got a cattle ranch. I've got everything that would determine me to be a person of wealth and prestige that has everything that I possibly need or want. He's gathered all of this and he's enjoying it. It even says, I got singers. Like he's saying, I didn't just get a subscription to Spotify. Like I own Spotify. Like I took in everything that I possibly could and to possess it for myself. And not only that, he gets into what he's really infamous for. He gets into women. As I mentioned, 700 wives. In addition to the 700 wives, he also had 300 concubines at his beck and call. Which concubine is woman on the side. A thousand women. I mean, Valentine's Day was just on Friday. I don't know how he did it. Like, I'm going to need a dozen roses assorted, can you deliver them to these thousand addresses that I have? Just make sure you get the names correctly. I mean, here's the reality, and, and I'm not going to get into whether this was permitted or prohibited um, as far as biblical, whether it's right or wrong, what he did here. Um, you want to know, just do some Bible studies yourself this week. But here's the reality is, Solomon experienced uninhibited sexuality. He experienced uninhibited sexuality. 
I mean, he made Hugh Hefner look like a rookie. Like, if you got Hugh Hefner walking in with six blonde girls attached to his hip, Solomon's looking at him and being like, six? I got married to six on Tuesday. I'm like, this is what Solomon's like thinking. Like, he's, he's uninhibited sexuality. I mean, literally to the point to where, like, he exhausted fantasies. And after all of this, he's going to begin to talk about the experiences of the party scene, of the acquisition scene, the building scene, and in the end, just outright hedonistic scene. I mean, he was just after anything that would please him. He's going to talk about these three and kind of unpack them, starting in verse 9. He says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. That's a pretty funny text. He's essentially saying, I was popular. I was popular. Well, yeah. I mean, you're throwing parties for fifteen to 20,000 people. Your name's going to get around, in addition to him being king. But one thing that he says here, and this part's really important for us, he says, also, my wisdom remained with me. My wisdom remained with me. Here's what he's saying there. I never forgot what I was doing. I never forgot what I was doing. I never got so caught up and so lost in seeking pleasure that I forgot what my goal was. That I forgot what my goal was. He never forgot that this was an experiment from day one. And so if you're kind of out there looking at this and you're thinking, man, this is biblical. I like to go out and explore and experiment. Ecclesiastes has been written. All right? There's nothing left to experiment. If you're out there, you're like, man, I'd go Let's go experiment. Let's just go see what's out there for our own enjoyment. Because Ecclesiastes is written, that's now called sin. It's called sin. Let's keep reading. There are some things in here that, that you're not going to like, especially if you're grown up in church or have a church background because you've just been told differently. And I, and I say that from the perspective of being a youth pastor in the South where basically the parents' primary goal was Tell all of the kids that partying is awful and that it's not fun and that they're not going to enjoy any of those things and that you can't enjoy anything in that regards. Well, here's what Solomon says in verse 10. Don't get mad at me. This is just scripture. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Here, here's what he's going to say. And I've, again, I've heard a plethora of preachers disagree with him here. But this is what he's saying. The party scene, I had a good time. The party scene, I had a good time. The building of houses and the acquisition and the building of the pools, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was a good time. Moving into kind of the hedonistic um, I, I just, I'm going to sit back and just rest in the wives, the concubines, the servants, the cattle ranch, horse ranch, the palace, the comedians, the music, all of it. I had an awesome time. He literally said, my heart enjoyed it. I found pleasure in it. But then he says, this was my reward for all my toil. What did I get out of all of that pleasure? Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was still vanity 
and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's starting to compare pleasure. And what he's ultimately saying is this pleasure that I'm receiving in these things is just momentary. It's a striving after the wind. It's here and then it's gone. It's like a vapor. It's there and I get to enjoy it, but then it's gone. It's momentary. It's fleeting. And it does not satisfy what I was ultimately seeking out for. Here's why I think this is a lot of danger for us this morning. We're in a lot of danger this morning because we don't have Solomon's resources. He got to the end. I mean, he could not throw a bigger party. He could not acquire anything more. There were no more houses to build. There were no more servants to have. I mean, he literally reached the cap on everything that was under the sun in order to provide him pleasure. And for us, we just don't get there. He never reaches any type of level of satisfaction. And for us, this this reality, well, in an unfortunate way, the church has, has... been kind of pinpointed if you're thinking like Ned Flanders on this on the the Simpsons like we got to get pointed as the the uh, killjoy of fun or like church must be boring because at the end of it it just it's all there is no fun that you can have as a Christian it's all vanity it's all pointless it's all meaningless and what he's ultimately saying here, and, and what I think, again, is an issue for us, is, is we can start to read texts like this and start to rail against any type of enjoyment or pleasure. And at some point in our Christian culture, I don't know when it happened, but at some point, God became the enemy of fun. He, he became the enemy of joy. And this is what, really, non-believers view us as. Like they don't want to go party with believers because believers don't have fun. They don't want to spend their Friday nights or Saturday nights with believers because they're going to be judged in any type of fun. And unfortunately, like this is a reality, but what I love about Ecclesiastes and what it's pointing us back to is it's not that we can't have fun. God's literally the author of it. I mean, there is no pleasure under the sun That was not God's idea. It was God's idea. I mean, you take, again, there's two things that people are kind of like, this is risque within the church, but sex and alcohol. God's not surprised by it. Like he literally, how did he start us out? He created male and female, Adam and Eve, put them in a beautiful garden, naked, and said, enjoy it. That's a good gig. Like, that's a great start. Enjoy it. Uninhibited. Enjoy it. And people are like, you know, in Christian circles, and I've even heard heard this back in the day, yeah, well, it was just for uh, procreation and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no. You're not reading the Hebrew correctly. 
Enjoy yourselves. Be fruitful. Multiply. How do you multiply? God wasn't shocked by it. Like, do you think it surprised God the first time we let grapes go bad? No. Like, he's not up there thinking, like, man, I created grapes. What are you doing? Oh. That's a good idea. No, it's his idea. Like, Jesus turned water into grape juice? No. I know we're Baptists, but, like, no. Like, it's, it's wine for our enjoyment. God is not the killjoy of pleasure. Like he invented it and created it. There's a design around it in order for us to enjoy it to the fullest. And that's what he's ultimately after, is us being able to enjoy it. And, and here's the reality. Is I think every single person in this room, we were created and designed to seek pleasure. Everyone in this room, you were designed to seek pleasure. God wired you that way hardwired you that way. There's no other way that you can unwire yourself to where you're not seeking any type of pleasure. I mean, for those of you who have children or have been around children, like out of the womb, they're seeking pleasure. Two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, I want milk. Give me milk. I want you to hold me. Hold me. I want you to do a dance for me. Dance for me right now. Like it's whatever it is they want you to please them. I mean, literally just yesterday, my four-year-old Ezra, like he, he's climbing up on the couch onto the armrest. I mean, because I think he just thinks if you get the high ground, like he's got the upper end of it. But he gets up there and he just yells, Daddy, he's got like his arm up in the air. He's like, Daddy. Get over here on the floor. I'm going to wrestle you and defeat you, and it makes me happy. So I come in, and I lay on the floor, and then he just jumps people's elbow right onto me. And if you don't know people's elbow, again, it's, you're not redneck enough, okay? Like, it's just it's wrestling. But anyways, like, we're wired this way, hardwired to seek out pleasure. And it never changes. Just sometimes the pursuit of it changes. It just looks different the older you get. But the pursuit is always there. In the 1600s, there was this kind of genius mathematician, philosopher, theologian. Uh, his name was Blaise Pascal. And he's famous for this quote. And I've actually used this quote multiple times before for us. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Even the man who takes his own life does so in the pursuit of his own happiness. It's literally the driving force behind everything that we do. And what do we do with Solomon who pursues pleasure with all his might and then comes back and says, well, you can pursue it if you want, but it's meaningless. It's chasing the wind. What do we do with that? When we're designed to pursue it and Solomon says, well, if you pursue it, it's, it doesn't mean anything. 
I love what C.S. Lewis has to say here in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics. And just to kind of give you a little background of those guys, Immanuel Kant was a philosopher um, taught that to, to the level in which you enjoyed something, you lessened its virtue. Um, and so kind of what he's saying there, according to Kant, is it was more virtuous for me to hate my wife but stay with her because of commitment than it was for me to love my wife and love being with her. So his idea was, that it was more virtuous for me to deplore the very existence of my wife, but because of my vow, stay with her, than it was for me to love her with my whole heart. Like, that guy needs a hug. <laughs> like, right? That's just a depressing person. Um, but this is what C.S. Lewis is saying in regards to that cultural view. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels it would seem that our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we don't seek pleasure enough and therefore we settle for the lesser pleasures of life that actually never satisfy us and the actual famous part of his quote here is this we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, when sin entered the world and fractured it, Romans 1 tells us that what happened is you and I ultimately exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we began to worship creation rather than creator. And this is the part of us that is not seeking enough pleasure. That is settling for the lesser pleasures of creation rather than the ultimate pleasure of our creator. And we, every single one of us do this. I mean, you can literally think about this. How many of you have ever had like a 10-year plan? Some of you are like, well, 10 years ago I was seven. Like... <laughs> but like a lot of you, like 10-year plan, like if I could just get to this, I will be happy or life will mean something or I will have done something with my life. And here's the reality is, is none of us actually ever get to the 10-year plan because what happens? We're five years in and we redefine our next 10-year plan because it's not satisfied us yet. Like if I could just graduate high school, if I could just turn 21, if I could just graduate college, if I could just get married, if I could just land a good job, if I could just have a child, if I could then have more kids and then more, and then if I could just start to acquire for me wealth and whatever it looks like, if I could just get here. But the reality is we're just running on that treadmill our entire life and then we're going to die. And that's our American dream in the pursuit of happiness. Is it's an unending pursuit. It's an unending pursuit when we're seeking pleasure in creation rather than in creator. And all of us, if we'll just admit it or not, have bought into the philosophy 
that as we're going throughout that, what's going to ultimately satisfy our soul is just more of what we already have, right? More of what we already have. Like very few of us in this room, and I say very few because I do know of some who have bought a car because their car blew up. <laughs> but very few of us in this room do that. Like most of us buy a car, and it's crazy. It's like the things like, man, my car needs an oil change. I really don't want to spend $39 in cash to get that oil change, so I'll just go get a new car. Let's just go that route. Like no one in here has bought a pair of jeans because your former pair of jeans disintegrated. Right? We go get more jeans that look partially disintegrated and we pay 90 bucks for them. This is what we do. If $90 is like too bougie for you, then like 40 bucks, okay? We'll spend 40 bucks on jeans. And even for those who are like, man, I wouldn't spend $40 on jeans. You then leave Kohl's and you go across the street and you spend $40 on a steak dinner. Like we're all sinners in here, okay? Like I'm right there with you, all right? Like, I understand. I've had 28 vehicles in 16 years. I get it, all right? That one's on me, all right? I'm not saying this is you versus me. This is us. We do this. We're striving after the wind. We're seeking out things. And unfortunately, again, I, I think our, our, our fear, what I'm afraid of, is Solomon finally gets to the end of his goals and says it's vanity. We don't possess the resources to get to the end of our goals. We don't. And so we're just going to run on that treadmill. And it's like there's the gym I go to like three times a year. <laughs> when, when I walk into that gym, the first thing I hear are those treadmills. You know, you can, I think most everyone can just hear those treadmills. And like when someone's running on just a choom, 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 like you can picture it. But the fear that I have for us is that our entire life, we're going to just be running on the treadmill of seeking out satisfaction in creation and never being full. It never being enough. It never ultimately providing the pleasure that we're out of, that, that we're seeking from it. This is why I love one of my favorite passages, and we're closing this out here. In John chapter 4, there's this story of Jesus going to the well. And it's in Samaria, and Jews aren't supposed to travel through Samaria. So Jesus, again, kind of being scandalous in culture, um, not scandalous in Scripture, scandalous in culture, goes through Samaria to this well where he speaks to this woman at midday. And as he's speaking to this woman, he's saying, will you draw me some water? And, and she's like, okay, I'll draw you some water. And, and then he starts having this conversation with her. And he says, you know what? If people, I'm paraphrasing here, okay? He said, people come to this well for water and they're gonna have to come back again. And they're gonna have to come back again because this water is not gonna satisfy them. And then he asked the woman, will you drink from my, the water that I provide? And this woman, again, not getting it, is like, you don't even have a cup. You just asked me for water. But he says, no, you're not understanding me. I am the water that ultimately satisfies. My water that I provide is eternal, is eternal. It fills an eternal void that temporary, tangible things will never fill. 
And what he's ultimately saying to her is, you can keep every single day seeking after the same things that are never going to satisfy. But if you come to me, you will ultimately find the satisfaction that you are actually designed to have. And where I think that comes from, and we'll actually see this in a few weeks, is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where he says, there's eternity written on the hearts of man. And what I think he means by that, and this is kind of an abstract idea, and I, so I can't best explain it to you right now. But what I think he's saying there is there's something within our soul, so deep within our souls, that we remember what it was like before the fall. And therefore, because eternity is written on our hearts, we're trying to get back there. We're trying to get back to that place where everything was full, where I was satisfied, where I did not want for anything. And what we see clearly throughout the scriptures is that because that's written on our souls, every person who is ever born is seeking to get back to that place of fulfillment. It's just whether or not, as Romans 1 says, we're seeking it through creation or we find it in our creator. Whether we're seeking it through all of those kind of acquisitions or phases of life, or we're finding it in Christ, in Christ alone. This is why Psalms 23, 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's my shepherd, therefore I don't desire anything else. Because of him, I am fully satisfied. Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just think about Solomon and all that he did. I mean, he labored and he told more than you will ever labor and toil. And he found it, um, as he says, I hated life. <laughs> Talk about a weary man. I hated life. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, those who hate life. I will give you rest. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. At the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is the conclusion for Solomon's experiment. His hypothesis was, let's see if there's something under the sun that will bring us satisfying pleasure. His conclusion is, there's nothing under the sun. Therefore, there must be something outside of this world that comes in in order to provide us the pleasure that we are designed to find. And Christ, coming in as the incarnate God, comes to our world and says, I'm here. Your pleasure that you're seeking after is here. And it's only found in me. And the fact that he says, I'm the bread of life, isn't even a transition. It's just walking us right into communion. I'm the bread of life that will satisfy you. And so what I want us to do right now before I finish this out is I want us to go ahead and stand. And for those who are believers, I want you to come up to the front. I want you to grab these elements, the bread and the juice, and I want you to come back to your seats. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. 
Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at